As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Rebecca with 1C, and this is Silent Crash. As 2022 begins, I find myself in a state of shock that Public Acts 21 and 22 have not yet been repealed or even reformed. What a complete embarrassment and shame for the state of Michigan, delivered by its legislature, governor, and wealthy influencers. I want to hold to the belief that government exists to protect and benefit its citizens. I really do. I want to believe that people who are elected come to the office with a civil servant's heart. Sure, they'll personally benefit, but that's not their primary motivation for seeking office. The only way the government of this nation stands the test of time is if its elected officials are motivated by civic good over personal gain. It is this belief that made me question the other Rebecca when she called back in October and told me about the auto no-fault reforms and their impact. When she said we're losing our health care and people are dying, I thought she had to be wrong. No state legislature would so mistreat its citizens, much less knowingly continue doing it when their legislation sparked an outcry. But that turns out to be exactly what is happening as I sit here talking to you. And I find it challenging to wrap my mind around this reality, around the totality of our national reality right now, in fact. Now, I've long been a reader and a researcher of the lives of James and Dolly Madison. If I had to pick a single founder of this nation whom I view as consistently well-intentioned and reasoned, even while failing in some of his own attempts at a true and right life, it would be James Madison. And a thought of his speaks to me in this particular situation of trying to reconcile my innate desire for kindness, fairness, justice, decency, and care with what is going on in Michigan. 
Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers, quote, What is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. The greatest of all reflections on human nature, he wrote. Are public acts 21 and 22 a reflection of human nature? I think they are. I think they reflect the human tendency toward greed and self-interest. On the part of Dan Gilbert, on the part of Mike Duggan, on the part of Mike Shirky, Lana Tice, Jason Wentworth, Gretchen Whitmer, auto insurance companies. I mean, I have been digging for a couple of months now. The only reasons I've found for Public Acts 21 and 22 to exist are personal greed and self-interest. Some people got paid already. Others are relying on a couple of coming industries to Michigan, both of which required the destruction of the auto no-fault system. Those people are playing a long game, which we'll get into in a coming episode if this legislation doesn't get fixed. I can find not one single redeeming reason for this legislation to have been created, much less passed. And that, I know, would appall the founding fathers of this great nation, that its governing systems have fallen to such an extent for so base a reason as greed. Alexander Hamilton himself wrote in those same Federalist Papers, quote, Why has government been instituted at all? Because the passions of men will not conform to the dictates of reason and justice without constraint. Government is supposed to be the constraint on greed and self-interest in capitalism. I'm not the one saying that. The humans who founded the United States of America, who wrote its founding documents, its governance, they said that. And it has worked spectacularly in this fashion before. Remember the robber barons of the late 19th century? Unlike their captains of industry brethren, they did not care about the effects of their existence on others. No, theirs was a complete me, 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 mine, mine, mine mentality. They paid workers barely enough to survive. They grew rich by cheating, lying, and backroom dealing to eliminate their competition and create monopolies. And government stepped in to check all of that by creating the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1890. It continues to step in to give workers the right to a safe and secure workplace. It works just as the founders intended in those instances, just as Alexander Hamilton described, to constrain the passions of men so that they conform to reason and justice. Now, you might be wondering how all this ties to what's happening right now in Michigan. Stay with me. Because during that same Gilded Age that included the robber barons, we find a Michigander who charted a different course. This man, born in Springwells Township in Wayne County, 
chose to pay his workers twice the rate his competitors offered. While workers elsewhere were required to be there 10 hours a day, six days a week, this man said eight hours a day, five days a week would suffice. And rather than rob citizens of their contracted health care, as the current Michigan legislature and governor have done, this Michigander, well, he donated millions of his own dollars to a local hospital so that lower-income people could have access to health care. He created a farm for orphaned boys, a school for black kids in Georgia, and a trade school in Detroit. He even paid for work camps for boys during the Great Depression. This Michigander saw what his industry peers were doing, and he charted a different course, a course whose value stands the test of time. It's why we still study his ways. We still write and read books about him. We still look to him as a captain of industry. It's why 88,000 people in this nation alone still work for the company that bears his name. It's why 4.2 million units emblazoned with his name were sold last year. He died over 70 years ago, but he did so well in such a good way that we all still know his name. Henry Ford is a shining example of Michigan heart, drive, and ability. Now, I know that there are some legislators listening to this program, and I know Governor Whitmer has been urged by some friends to listen as well. So I want to say something to you directly, just between you and me. You still have time to become a Michigander like Ford. He was not perfect. Heck, his first company, the Detroit Auto Company, it went bankrupt. He didn't get everything right all the time. But he did not stay quiet or quit when failure happened, he put his head down and he kept trying and he made better, wiser choices. That's why his legacy and influence live on. And you can become that right now. Right this very second. You know now that PA 21 and 22 were bad choices because you have heard the stories and experts right here on Silent Crash. You can be excused from not really grasping the enormity of horrific impact they would have the night you helped pass it. After all, the two worst parts, well, they weren't even put into the bill until just before its third reading in the Senate around 2 a.m. that night. You had zero time to read that amendment before being required to rely on your leadership's instruction to pass the bill with it. That can be understood Excused, it does not have to tarnish your entire life's legacy unless you stay quiet and quit. Let's take a short break before I introduce you to a modern-day Michigander who is building a legacy to stand the test of time as well. It is- 
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Silent Crash. I'm Rebecca with 1C. One of the first things I learned about Michigan's auto no-fault law is that it has been around for decades. Since 1973, actually. Learning this made me wonder why the leaders in the Michigan legislature felt it was so awful as to call an emergency session nearly 50 years later, in 2019, to gut it. Clearly there was history here, and the devil is always in the historical details. So, I went in search of a legal expert, and I found Mr. George Sinus. Okay, Mr. Sinus, how about we start out with you telling me, how did you become an expert in Michigan auto no-fault to begin with? Uh, total happenstance. So here's the short answer. I graduated from law school in 1975. The auto no-fault law went into effect in October of 1973. That law dramatically altered auto reparations law in the state of Michigan. What we studied in law school was no longer the law. And as a result, there was total confusion and uncertainty. And to compound the problem, the law was immediately challenged uh, as to its constitutionality. That litigation was called the Shavers litigation, and it took from 1973 until 1978 to wow. get fully resolved. When it was resolved, uh, the law was upheld in terms of its constitutionality, and then appellate decisions start to, started to come down. My boss uh, told me that we needed an expert in the field of auto no fault because nobody really knows anything about it. So you're elected. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> yeah. And my assignment was to begin reading every case that came down and to summarize those cases, to write articles. I did all of that dutifully. Uh, and that eventually turned into a textbook and then eventually another textbook. And my practice just uh, became completely consumed by helping victims seriously injured victims in auto accident cases. I ended up uh, teaching uh, the, the auto no-fault course at Michigan State University Law School and through the years did a lot of um, lecturing um, in the legal community. And I testified on a number of occasions in the uh, Michigan legislature. So it was all because my boss had the vision to see that somebody needed to get us going down the right road. And, and that's what happened. So 
Is it true what I've been told about how this this has been challenged by the Republicans in this state for decades and it had been shot down by the voters? Their their efforts had been shot down by the voters in the early 90s twice? Well, uh, what happened is after the no-fault law went into effect, within um, 10, 15 years, premiums started to sneak up. Why? Um, well, because the Michigan no-fault law... Uh, requires that every accident victim, when they buy a policy, that 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 policy provide unlimited lifetime coverage for all medical and rehabilitation expenses that are incurred by the victim. And that's for that was for every person, right? For, for Everybody every, who for had every person. Okay. Now, when I say unlimited, that's not really a good word to use because there were limits. Um, charges had to be reasonable. And the services had to be reasonably necessary. And there were a host of other conditions and prerequisites that had to be satisfied in order to trigger the payment of these benefits. But essentially, uh, the law adopted a, a universal form of health care for this population of auto accident victims. And, and that was uh, absolutely uh, cutting edge. No other state had ever done that. And so when you provide that much coverage, the premium is going to reflect that. Okay. But at all times in my judgment, uh, with, with a few exceptions, the premium that was charged for the medical part of the policy was really a good deal. The big premium driver, uh, the, big, the single biggest premium driver during the history of no fault has been the collision coverage. It's been the collision coverage. We pay more to insure the bumpers than we do to insure the bodies. <laughs> and, 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 um, this got really lost in, in the, uh, in, in the, in the chaos. And I never once, never once saw a bill introduced that would control collision coverage premiums. Not once. That struck me as odd. It still does, actually. The legislators and governors say that PA 21 and 22 reduced everyone's insurance premiums so much that people are getting refund checks now. They say that it was auto no-fault coverage, personal injury protection, or PIP, that drove insurance premiums through the roof for customers. But listen to what Mr. Sinus just said. The part of the insurance premium that went into the MCCA fund was only a small portion of the overall insurance premium. The argument the legislators and governor have made is like saying you're going to massively lower the cost of a Happy Meal by cutting the cost of the ketchup on the hamburger inside. It makes no sense, really. It relies on the confusion or ignorance of the citizen to even be plausible. PIP, personal injury protection. Or personal insurance protection. Personal insurance protection, okay. Um, was, you know, historically about 30% of, of the policy. So when you actually broke that out percentage-wise and translated it into dollars, it was a tremendous deal. And then I wondered, how did the MCCA fund get started in the first place? MCCA, that's the Michigan Catastrophic Claims Association, it's the fund with the $23 billion in it. How did it start? Why didn't the insurance companies just 
pay the claims as they came in. All right, let's focus on on the MCCA mechanism. Mm -hmm. Under Michigan no-fault, when the no-fault statute was first adopted, the benefits, as I indicated, the PIP benefits for medical and rehabilitation, had no lifetime cap. And that meant that every time an insurance company sold a policy, there was the potential there that that insurance company would have to pay out uh, millions of dollars over the course of the lifetime of a catastrophically injured victim. Mm -hmm. And so it was determined a few years later that something needed to be done to minimize that open-ended risk. And so the legislature created this association, the Michigan Catastrophic Claims Association, which really became like a reinsurer. So every time an insurance company got hit with a claim in a real bad accident, once that insurance company paid out medical expenses totaling the operative threshold dollar level, then every additional dollar that that insurance company paid out to that victim over the course of the lifetime of that victim would be reimbursed to the insurer by the MCCA, by this big reinsurer. So they and were kind of like the insurance for the insurers. Exactly. Okay. And, and every year that dollar threshold would go up or every other year, depending on what period of time you're looking at. So at first it started, I think, at 250000 And then it went up to three hundred and four hundred. I think now it's $580,000 uh, at the last adjustment. Uh, and so once an insurer hits that, they, the insurer keeps paying. They keep paying, but they get reimbursed by the MCCA, if the MCCA feels like it. Which gets us into a whole other issue. That's a whole another discussion. Oh, yeah. we're going to because have. the MCCA, because of one particular Supreme Court decision called USF and G, has acquired powers that, in my opinion, the legislature never intended to give it. And as a result of these acquired powers, the MCCA is acting like a super adjuster. And that's not what they were created for. They were created to reimburse insurers in catastrophic injury cases. They weren't intended to run the claim. And that's what they're doing now. So are they? So they were created back in 1978 for this. And back then, it was around $250,000 that that was still what the insurance company would have to pay before they started pushing the claims through to their quote unquote insurer, which would be MCCA. Right. And that $250,000 went up periodically since 1978 to where now today it was a little over a half million dollars. Right. And then still the insurance company was able to push claims over that to the MCCA. Well, they don't push claims. It, 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 that's not really an accurate phrase. Okay. They continue to, to administer the claim. Okay. The, the insurance company doesn't push the claim. The insurance company is entitled to be reimbursed Got it. for every dollar it spends above the threshold. Got it. Understood. Okay, so... In practicality, because I just, I understand things so much better in story than I do in theory. So let's invent a story. Let's say I'm, uh, I'm a driver, I'm a drunk driver, and I hit somebody. Before auto no fault, what happened to make the driver that I hit whole? All right. This is, you're getting to the reason why professors Keaton and O'Connell invented no fault in the late 60s and early 70s. And here's what happened. Because all auto reparations 
were based on tort law. That meant that the victim could only recover if the victim was not the one at fault. The victim would have to prove that the other guy in your hypothet here, the drunk driver, was at fault for causing the accident. And then the victim could recover from the drunk driver through the drunk driver's insurance company the expenses, medical, wage loss, as well as non-economic damages, such as pain and suffering, disability, loss of function, from that drunk driver, assuming the victim could prove he was at fault and the victim wasn't at fault. There was another doctrine called comparative negligence, or excuse me, contributory negligence. Contributory negligence said if the victim was 1% at fault, and the drunk was 99% at fault, the victim couldn't recover because the victim was slightly tainted. That was the doctrine of contributory negligence. So now you've got this, this system of law called tort law that requires proof that the drunk is 100% to blame, the victim is 0% to blame. Well, what happens if the victim was 1%? What happens if there was no at-fault party? Mm-hmm. Somebody had a heart attack, maybe. Somebody had a heart attack, or a deer ran out in front of the car, or the victim hit dry uh, uh, black ice and ran into a tree. Those people were out. They were out because there was no at-fault party. And, and so the proponents of no-fault said, look, we've got to revise the system so that all victims who incur motor vehicular injury have certain basic benefits that will cover the losses and the damages that they have sustained. And the other reason uh, motivating no fault was that for those victims that could prove all of those things, drunk driver, 100% responsible victim, no responsibility, they typically had to retain lawyers. Hmm. And they had to go through the legal system to litigate that claim. And that required the payment of attorney fees. It, it resulted in the delay of, of the court system. Uh, and so victims were not getting prompt and assured compensation for their medical expenses. So NOFA comes along and says, okay, it's going to be exactly what it's called. No fault. Everybody that's hurt, regardless of who caused the accident, is going to get these PIP benefits paid to them. So now the person that had the heart attack at the wheel and hit me, they're covered with their insurance, and I'm covered with my insurance. That's right. The typical rule was the victim would go to their own insurance company. Now, how did the system envision that this was going to be paid for? Well, they... The, the authors, the architects of No Fault said, look, in order to fund, in order to have enough money on the PIP side of the equation, what we need to do is limit the right of the victim, the totally innocent victim, to recover non-economic damages unless the victim had a serious injury. Non-economic damages, again, pain and suffering, disability, loss of function, deprivation of social pleasure and enjoyment, damages that I refer to as quality of life damages. So the law says, okay, so unless you've got a serious injury, which we lawyers call a threshold injury, Mm -hmm. 
you're not going to get a dime for your pain and suffering, your mental angst, nothing. But if you have a threshold injury, which under Michigan law uh, is serious impairment of body function or permanent serious disfigurement or death, if you have one of those, then you can get these non-economic damages. And so by limiting the non-economic damages recoverable by victims in minor injury cases, the thinking was you would free up enough money to fund the PIP side of the equation, which was paying out medical expenses without regard to fault. And that was the grand bargain, what we call the quid pro quo. You give up a little bit on the tort side and you get uh, quite a bit on the PIP side. You get quite a bit when you really, really need it. When you need it. And, and it was primarily it, meaning the system was primarily intended to benefit the catastrophically injured victim. So unfold for me a little bit, what does that benefit mean? So I'm, I'm hit by the person who had a heart attack at the wheel, and now I've got a traumatic brain injury, I'm in a wheelchair, maybe I'm a paraplegic, maybe I'm a quadriplegic, I'm going to need ongoing care, both to continue to try to recover and just con- continue to live. It's hard having never been in that position for me to really wrap my mind around what all is included in that and then how what got included, what what is included, got impacted by this law. Because they use these words like post-acute care and acute care. And, you know, I'm just a layman. I don't don't know all of these words. So if I got catastrophically injured in a car accident, what kind of care am I going to need ongoing that was covered? Well, one of the the greatest accomplishments of no fault is – that the drafters were able to come up with an extremely broad and extensive body of benefits through the use of a very few number of words. And believe it or not, this system of this that I call this universal healthcare system has been created by the no-fault statute in one sentence. And wow. here's what that sentence says. It says that an insurer is obligated to pay allowable expenses, which consist of all reasonable charges for reasonably necessary products, services, and accommodations for an injured person's care, recovery, or rehabilitation, period, end of quote. That is the definition of the allowable expense benefit. And over the years, the court says, has said that, hey, this is a very, very broad language, evidencing the legislature's intent that we create a big tent here. And so the courts have said the allowable expense benefit consists of many things, not only the, the traditional hospital expense and the doctor's expense, but things such as mileage to and from medical care, um, the purchase of uh, or rental of durable medical equipment, such as wheelchairs, uh, portable potty chairs, um, the adaptations to, to the residence of a handicapped person, such as uh, guardrails, ramps. Um, if a person needs in-home attendant care after they're discharged from the hospital, the allowable expense benefit was interpreted by the courts to provide that, re- that attendant care which the court said could be rendered by a commercial agency, could be rendered by the next door neighbor, could be rendered by the family members of the injured person, as long as 
as long as the service was reasonably necessary and the charge was a reasonable charge. The courts went on to say that if you sustain a terrible brain injury in a, in a car accident and you lose the ability to manage your affairs, then the cost of having a guardian appointed is covered. If you need to be retrained because you can't go back to your old job, then the cost of vocational rehabilitation is a covered benefit, and on and on and on and on. So this really was a system that took care of people. Right. It took care of the people that really needed it, and it took care of them in a universal manner. It looked at their life, and it, it appreciated, the law appreciated, that when you catastrophically injure somebody, you inflict life-altering changes that go way beyond paying for the doctor. Mm -hmm. And we want to take those people who have been sidelined from, from the normal enjoyment of life, we want to take them and make them whole. Make them whole to the extent that we can. Mm -hmm. And that's why the legislature passed this, this law it, that, that so broadly and so wisely covered all aspects of catastrophic injury. So from your perspective, was it working? I think it was working, with certain exceptions, very well. What wasn't working was that there were not enough restraints and controls imposed on the industry to make sure that no fault remained affordable. And there were things that could have been done that never got done. For example, and, and this is what I refer to as they didn't use the tools in the toolbox. What was the first tool? It was the Shavers case that I described a minute ago. The Shavers case sustained the constitutionality of no fault, but said this, no fault constitutionally must, be, must have rates that are fair and equitable. Mm -hmm. And then in another place, fair and affordable. And the Shavers case said this is a right protected by the due process clause and the equal protection clause of the Michigan Constitution. And if rates are not fair and equitable, fair and affordable, then the rate making system and, and, and hence the entire statute becomes constitutionally defective. Now, the court didn't define fair and affordable, fair and equitable. It left that for subsequent definition. The first thing that should have happened in the years after Shavers was the Michigan Insurance Bureau should have said, look, the Shavers decision has articulated a constitutional test that must be satisfied mm -hmm. if the system is going to retain its constitutional viability, we better start articulating some standards mm -hmm. as to what is a fair and equitable rate. They never did that. The Bureau never gave any detailed examination to what that phrase meant. What they did instead was enforce a statute that was more restrictive than this constitutional mandate articulated by the Supreme Court in Shavers. And they, and, and they ended up applying the wrong standard 
to the ever-increasing specter of rising rates in Michigan. The second thing that they didn't do, there was a provision in the Michigan No-Fault Law called Section 3109A that had been there from the beginning, and it addressed coordinated no-fault policies. Coordinated no-fault policies, by the way, are policies that most people in Michigan buy because the premium is lower. And the premium is lower because when you buy coordinated coverage, you're agreeing to elevate your health insurance company into the primary pay position, and you move your no-fault company into the secondary pay position where no-fault only has to pay what's not covered by health insurance. Okay. Right? And so what did the legislature say when it permitted coordinated coverage? It said that premiums for coordinated coverages must be appropriately reduced. What does that mean? Good question. What does it mean? They didn't define appropriate reduction. They said they must be appropriately reduced and they must be subject to pre-approval. By whom? By the commissioner. The insurance commissioner? That's right. Okay. So I handled a lawsuit a number of years ago and we suspected in that lawsuit that there was no definition of appropriately reduced and there was no official procedure with regard to pre-authorization to determine that specific question. And we took the deposition of an official from the insurance bureau and I have the transcript and I'm more than willing to, to make that transcript public. It is public. It's been quoted in, in various things. And that official, in short, said, no, we don't have an official definition of what is an appropriately reduced premium. And we do not have a specific procedure for pre-authorization to determine if that particular premium for that particular coordinated coverage was appropriately reduced. Now, stop and think about that. Back in the heyday of coordinated benefits, probably 80% of Michigan consumers were buying coordinated coverages and we had an insurance bureau charged by the legislature to make sure that premiums were appropriately reduced before insurers could sell these policies and, and there was no real, true implementation or enforcement of that requirement. Do you think if that had been in place that premiums would have stayed lower? Yeah, if it, was, if it had been implemented and enforced the right way. And why do I think that? Think of the tremendous cost shift that goes on when you have coordinated coverages. You're taking the, the liability from the auto no-fault insurance company and you're plopping it right into the lap of Blue Cross, mm -hmm. right? That's a lot of savings. That's a big risk shift. And if you've got a big risk shift like that, you would expect that the premiums for coordinated coverages would be way lower than a regular premium for uncoordinated coverage. And I found in my experience, there were situations where people were buying coordinated coverages and paying just a few bucks less than somebody buying uncoordinated coverage. I wanna be clear about something. I don't question the motives or the intentions of anybody. What I fault is that this train has been rolling down the track for decades and there were tools there that you 
government servants never utilized. They were brought to your attention. You didn't do anything about it. You just kept doing business as usual. And what happened? The premiums kept going up and up and up, and the political pressures got higher and higher and higher, and the heat got hotter and hotter. And what ended up happening? This mess that occurred in 2019, where in order to do something about these premiums, which hadn't been done in any other meaningful way, the answer was, well, let's just take the benefits away or let's reduce them. Reduce them and take them away from who? The catastrophically injured person, which was exactly that patient that was intended to be the beneficiary of this system. Okay, so, so now let's get to how it has changed since 2019. It's important to keep in mind that when you talk about these reforms that were passed in 2019, think of it as a circle. And there's two halves to that circle. The first is the issue of retroactivity of changes. The second half of the circle deals with changes and limitations going forward. So what are the changes? What are the limitations in benefits? The first and the most significant is the imposition of a government fee schedule. No longer are we going to use this standard that the insurer has to pay all reasonable charges. That's gone. Now the insurer doesn't have to pay any more than certain amounts listed in the fee schedule. And these amounts are based on what is Medicare compensable and what is not Medicare compensable. And essentially, if it's a service that was rendered, that, excuse me, that, was, that is covered by Medicare, then the fee schedule is the insurer doesn't have to pay any more than 200% of that. Okay. If a service is not covered by Medicare, if it's a non-compensable Medicare service, then the insurer has to pay no more than 55% of the provider's average charge as of January 1st, 2019. So there's a whole group of providers, primarily post-acute providers, and primarily in the brain injury world, that offer services, that render services, that are not compensable under the Medicare system. Those providers and the patients that they serve are now being subjected to a 45% fee cut. 45%. Of Cutting what they charged in 2019. That's right. right? Stated differently, they can only recover 55% of what they were uh, charging in 2019. You show me any business that can survive a 45% fee cut, 45% revenue cut. There just aren't any. That's an unsurvivable, unsurvivable government fee slash. And as a matter of fact, uh, if a 45% fee cut for providers is appropriate, how come we don't have a 45% cut in premiums, insurance Mm, premiums? mm, One would wonder. I guess what's good for the goose ain't good for the gander. Mm -hmm. 
Anyway, so that's the fee schedule. Then the next big limitation is with regard to attendant care, family-provided attendant care. You will remember that prior to this uh, reform, it was the law in this state established by a long line of, of uh, appellate cases that PIP benefits were not subject to any kind of a fee schedule, any kind of a fee schedule, none, and attendant care benefits could not be uh, dependent upon the identity of the caregiver. So if the attendant care was reasonably necessary because of the person's condition, didn't make any difference if a commercial agency provided the care, the lady next door provided the care, the, uh, the, the relatives provided care. Made no difference. It was compensable 24-7 if 24-7 was needed. Not so anymore. Under this law, if the, if the attending care, the in-home attending care, is rendered by a relative or by somebody living in the same household or by somebody with whom the, the victim had a relationship with prior to the accident, then only 56 hours a week are compensable. In other words, eight hours a day. What are you going to do with people that were needing 24-7? Well, and, and is was, that across all of them combined? Yeah. So you can't have three different people claiming 56 hours a week. You it's, got it. That's you it. You cannot. It's so, and, and there are hundreds, if not thousands of families in this state that had accidents a long time ago who are catastrophically injured, whose daily care, which is essential to their well-being, and in many cases their life itself, is being provided by family, friends, neighbors, and friends. All of a sudden, those lives have been totally disrupted because now only eight hours a day is going to be compensable. What about the other 16? Well, I guess you're going to have to go out and hire a commercial agency, right? Sure. You mean That's the now same getting paid. <laughs> you mean the same commercial agency that has to take a 45% fee cut that's closing its doors all over the state? This is in short a disgrace. It is a disgrace. There is no justification for that because these people, these victims they bought these policies a long time ago, and they got injured a long time ago. And the policies that they bought and paid for were not limited in this manner. Those policies required the payment, the reimbursement of medical expenses without regard to fee schedules, and they required insurance companies to reimburse attendant care without regard to the identity of the caregiver. That's what these victims bought. And now big brother government comes along and passes a law that goes right to the heart of those contracts and rips out those benefits that people bought and paid for. And in the process of stripping them of those rights completely causes these families to incur unimaginable distress. That is a disgrace, and that's the retroactivity issue. I don't understand how it's possible that these people had insurance contracts. They bought them. They paid. This is not tax money. This is 
they paid for these contracts and one of the benefits they were paying for was if I'm in a catastrophic accident and I have to access NCCA that I can, how is it even possible that that can be taken away retroactively? Well, we don't think it is possible. Uh, and that's what the Andary case, is. that's one of the central, if not the central issue in the Andary case. I asked Mr. Sinus what the Andary case is. So the Andary case is a case filed on behalf of um, Ms. Ellen Andary, uh, who sustained catastrophic brain injuries as a result of a drunk driver who crossed the center line. And you're involved with this case? I, I'm general counsel okay. uh, in, in, that, in that case. Um, in addition, there is a facility uh, known as Eisenhower down in the Ann Arbor area, and one of their patients a gentleman by the name of Mr. Kruger. Uh, and the lawsuit was filed um, challenging the constitutionality of primarily the 55% fee schedule and the family provided attendant care limitations. The lawsuit also challenges the retroactive application. In other words, the, the oh, position that we're taking in the lawsuit is this law was never intended to be applied retroactively, and therefore it shouldn't be. But if it is, then it's unconstitutional for a variety of reasons, including a violation of the Contracts Clause and a violation of equal protection and due process. Uh, we also allege in the lawsuit that going forward, the limitations on family-provided attendant care and the application of the 55% fee schedule are a violation of due process and equal protection for various reasons, including these fee schedules are unsurvivable, and they basically uh, prevent, the government prevents a certain group of businesses from surviving. Um, we also say that limiting by governmental fiat the identity of caregivers uh, is a violation of the privacy and the bodily integrity of the victim because it's really big brother coming in and saying uh, to people like Mrs. Andary, you know, Mrs. Andary, we understand that these, that these uh, family members that you have come in here, they, they do some very private and intimate things for you, including bathing and hygiene and stuff like that. But, uh, uh, we're not going to pay for any more than eight hours a day, so you're just going to have to have some strangers come in here and do those things. I heard that from another mom who has a daughter. I think she's 11 or 12 now. I'll have to check the age, but she's a little girl, and she has to be cathed yeah. every four hours. And of course, her mom does it. Sometimes the little girl can even do it to herself at this point, but this would mean they have to let a stranger come in and do that. Yeah, and what sense is there in the government saying, these mothers, no, mm. you can't cath your daughter. What is the basis of that? Is it because there have been a few people, a few families that were inappropriate and that defrauded the system? Is that a reason to subject everybody to these awful, awful new rules? I don't think so. 
Seems like there should be a way to just put a check and balance in place for those few right. bad actors. So, so what's um, the status now? Of so that case? the briefing has been done in the Court of Appeals. That's the intermediate appellate court. And we are waiting for an oral argument date. And I believe that yeah, probably sometime in the next several months, the case will be argued. Then the court will take it under advisement and then will issue a written opinion. I'm sure the loser in that case will seek an appeal to the Michigan Supreme Court, which is an appeal by application only. It's not by right. And if the Michigan Supreme Court wishes to hear the case, then that court will go through the same process of scheduling oral argument. Well, first of all, accepting briefs, scheduling oral argument, and issuing a decision. So um, if the case runs the gamut all the way through uh, the Supreme Court, it could be a few more years before we know. What happens to Mrs. Andary in the process? We'll find out. Mrs. Andary, like Laszlo, Tricia, Jake, Dylan, Rebecca, Shannon, and all the others, stays heavy on my heart and mind. Can you imagine having to wait through years of court procedures while losing your life-sustaining health care? Either racking up bills to keep it, or losing it, and therefore losing your life in the meantime. It seems utterly cruel to me. Mrs. Andary's case, though, gave the legislators who passed this awful legislation back in 2019 an opportunity to set the record straight. And, true to the endearing Michigan spirit, 73 of them did, surprising Mr. Sinus in the process. Um, and that's why I was so um, surprised and pleasantly surprised and pleased that Representative Brixey and Representative Schroeder um, gathered their colleagues together and uh, filed that amicus brief. And, and I'm holding in my hand the document that 73 legislators signed, and, and the, the key clause reads as follows. We, the undersigned lawmakers, sign this memo to express our strongly held belief that the attendant care limitations and the 55% fee schedule provisions of the recently enacted auto no-fault insurance reforms should not be retroactively applied to accident victims who purchased insurance policies and sustained bodily injury prior to the enactment of this legislation. We do not believe the legislature intended for subsection 7 and 10 to be applied retroactively. Many of us voted on this legislation understanding that subsection 7 and 10 would only be applied prospectively. Moreover, there does not appear to be any specific language in this legislation which clearly states a legislative intent to apply these provisions retroactively to previously injured victims. We believe these provisions are presumed to have only prospective application. I, I submit that this is incredible evidence that the retroactive application of this law 
to people who bought policies and were injured before its enactment is absolutely inappropriate and should not be countenanced. But what's so frustrating is what happens? The Michigan Insurance Bureau ends up filing an amicus brief supporting the insurance industry and arguing, yes, these changes, it's okay for these changes to apply to people who were injured years ago and bought policies years ago. Yes, the new rules should apply to them. What's the justification that you sh- that it should apply to them? Well, you know what? I read that brief and I see no justification. Our law is clear as decided by the Michigan Supreme Court that there are certain principles and standards that need to be applied to determine if a statute should be given retroactive application. The Supreme Court has recently articulated these rules in the Buell case. I think if you apply those rules and you apply them uh, with an open mind, the conclusion is obvious. This statute was never, ever, ever, ever intended to be applied to people that got hurt years ago. In addition to that, we have a provision in the Michigan Constitution called the Contracts Clause, which says it's unconstitutional for the government to pass a law that materially and significantly interferes with established contract rights. On both scores, this should be open and shut. How long is it going to take if you just rely on the court system in Michigan to, to fix the retroactivity portion of this? Well, the only, the only method right now where this retroactivity injustice can be corrected is in the courts because there is no real interest in the legislature to uh, pass remedial legislation um, to, to eliminate the retroactive application of these um, significant benefit limitations on victims. Um, now, will the legislature ever get to that point? Only if the political heat gets hotter and hotter, because that's the only thing that these folks understand. They don't feel a need to do anything right now. Gosh, and, and I don't know why. Uh, and I particularly don't understand why there would be no interest on the part of those politicians who view themselves as conservative. Mm-hmm. What's at the center of a conservative politician? Well, one of the things is the sanctity of the contract. Mm-hmm. Many ultra-conservative politicians bow down to the altar of the contract. And these politicians embrace the notion the government has no business passing laws that interfere with somebody's contract, right? The charge to reform this this retroactive application should be led by the most conservative politicians because it is a direct affront, a direct affront to the sanctity of the contract. But apparently, a double standard's being applied here. If the contract that's been interfered with is a contract purchased by some consumer from a big insurance company, I guess we look the other way. And that's what's happening. We're looking the other way. If they wanted to... Could the legislature fix this quickly, like by the end of the year? You bet they could. They could correct all of this stuff. They could correct the 55% fee schedule. They could correct the limitation on family-provided tenant care. They could clean up this whole thing. 
Why do you think they're not? I don't understand. Because there's not enough heat. There is no reasonable basis to conclude that the uh, decision makers fully understand. It's just a question of um, there doesn't appear to be a real appetite for doing anything meaningful. But I'm pleased that through efforts like uh, you and your show, uh, light is shining on the problem. And light is necessary. Uh, you're not going to ever fix this thing without a lot of light being reflected. But you know what? Ultimately, the light's got to turn to heat. Yeah. And if the light doesn't beget the heat, we're going to be talking about this again next year. It is now next year, 2022. This show is turning up the heat, garnering thousands of listens since that first episode released just two months ago. And we are seeing some legislators draft legislation to fix the reform, but I think it's going to take much more pressure, more heat. So please take a second to review this show and share it with your friends. You know, a nurse called me a few weeks ago to say that episode one of Silent Crash is, in her estimation, the best introduction to this multi-layered issue that she has found. She asked if we could design a yard sign for her, and she then had a hundred of them printed, and she went all over, passing them out and putting them in the ground. More of you started asking for those yard signs and other ways to help point people to the resource of Silent Crash, and we heard you. So you can now find sweatshirts, yard signs, vehicle clings, and more over on the Silent Crash website. It's at silentcrash.net. Proceeds from the sale of those items supports production of this show, but as importantly, those tools are designed to help you get the word out to your neighbors and community about Auto No Fault. As always, if you have tips for us to follow about the people who created this legislation and the ones who are blocking its repeal or reform, please get in touch on our Facebook page, our TikTok presence, or via the website silentcrash.net. On behalf of the 18,000 catastrophic car accident survivors and the thousands of individuals who help them sustain life every day, thank you for listening. Follow and subscribe to Silent Crash, the quiet unraveling of Michigan's auto no-fault and the destruction of lives wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information on what you've heard here and how you can help, visit silentcrash.net. Silent Crash is a production of the 1C Story Network. The show is written by Rebecca Seitz and produced by her and Rebecca Bond Tucker. Post-production services by Zischer LLC. This show is supported by the generous donations of concerned individuals via the Silent Crash GoFundMe effort. Learn more about the 1C Story Network at JustOneC.com. That's J-U-S-T-O-N-E-C dot com.
The One Sea Story Network for the love of stories.